Welcome to The Wellness Conversation, an Ohio Health podcast, a show dedicated to exploring health and wellness topics to inform and educate. I'm your host, Missy Gleason, and I'm joined by my co-host, Marcus Thorpe. Thanks, Missy. We are so excited to be here and to start this new podcast. And just to catch you up a little bit on who we are, Missy and I are teammates on Ohio Health's marketing communications team. I'm currently the media relations manager at Ohio Health. I've been in that role since 2016. And prior to that, worked nearly 20 years in television as an anchor, a reporter, and a producer, most recently with NBC4 in Columbus. I certainly love the art of the interview, and I hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as we will enjoy bringing it to you. And similar to Marcus, I started my professional career in television news as well. I spent 13 years producing newscasts at Columbus's CBS affiliate, WBNS 10TV. Today, I'm the brand journalism lead for Ohio Health, which involves working on the Ohio Health Wellness blog and our social media channels. I've been here since 2009. Today, we're talking about back to school physicals, vaccines, and getting back on a sleep schedule. Uh, We're narrowing down our focus, though, to kids in kindergarten through eighth grade. And because, let's face it, high schoolers, they need their own whole podcast. (laughs) Joining us today is Dr. Ashley Cremona-Simmons, a family medicine physician. Uh, Dr. Cremona-Simmons, it is so great to have you here. We're so glad that you're with us. Um, Tell us about your journey first at Ohio Health, kind of how you got to where you are, and specifically what you do for our health organization here. Thank you. So thank you, Marcus and Missy, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So in terms of a little bit about my journey, I'm originally from Maryland. I obtained my BA in public health as well as my master's in biotechnology, both from the Johns Hopkins University. After graduate school, I came to Columbus kind of by chance. I worked at a clinical as a clinical research coordinator, also with Ohio Health and an orthopedic surgeon's office, and um, applied to medical school. And I got accepted into the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, I was really intrigued kind of by osteopathic philosophy, uh, the history of A.T. Still, and this idea of being able to treat individuals with my hands on top of all of the other things that you learn in medical school was really intriguing to me. Actually, when I started my journey out to be a physician, I was so sure that I was going to be an OBGYN. I knew that I loved women's health. I knew that I was going to be delivering babies. It was just what I was going to do. Then third year hit, and a reality hit me, there was no way. I didn't like surgery, (laughs) I didn't like delivering babies, but I liked women's health, I loved working with children, and I loved making these longitudinal relationships. And when I went on my family medicine rotation, I knew that's where my my place was. So um, I trained here, also with an Ohio Health uh, residency program, Riverside Family Practice. It's a great one, it's a great one. Yes, it absolutely (laughs) is, and I would say that the practice that I'm with now is is also equally as great. (laughs) Um, I'm an assistant program director for Doctors Hospital Family Medicine. So in my role there, I teach residents. I see my own patients. I'm actively involved in curricular development as well as recruitment. Um, And I also work with all of our third and fourth year students. So doing a little bit of everything, which is true family medicine. What a journey. And and you're right. Family medicine is just an amazing space because, again, you see them from all different ages. So we are so glad that you're on our team and certainly a part of our podcast today. So we're looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, too. So we're going to start out today with the basics, the foundation, before our kids even get into the school year physicals. Yes. Um, So what should parents expect from their child's back-to-school physical, and why are these exams so important for their health? 
I'm really glad that you're asking that question for a variety of reasons. I think first, when we associate going to the doctors, it's usually when we have an issue, when we're sick, right? And that doesn't necessarily change with the kiddos. I see a lot of kiddos coming in, oh, I have an earache, I have a tummy ache. But these wellness exams, or physicals as we call them, are just as equally as important. Um, this is an ability for you to longitudinally get to know your physician and for your physician to get to know your child. So you asked, what can you expect? So during these visits, you know, they're going to listen to their heart. They're going to listen to their lungs. They'll take their measurements, making sure that they're growing appropriately, making sure their vital signs on track. You also, depending on their age, will be asked specific questions regarding their development. So in their younger years, um, you guys mentioned you were parents. You might, you might remember around 18 to 24 months that we do our autism screenings or, you know, it has, has he been able to kick a ball yet, um, you know, in the, in the previous uh, uh, developmental stages? It's the same thing with school-age children. It's also a time for parents. So as a family medicine physician, we say we're cradle to the grave. So I treat babies, I treat older individuals, I treat the entire family. This is also an opportunity for you as a parent to connect with the physician. So if you have concerns, if you know, you're having trouble um, with finances, food insecurity, those are things that you can bring up to your physician and get resources for. I think about my boys. I have a 13 and a 10-year-old, mm -hmm. and they're great, but they also, you know, they have this, I wouldn't say phobia of going to the doctor, mm -hmm. but like, what's going to happen? And my kids ask a lot of questions. And so I guess, how do we prepare our kids for back-to-school physicals to make it more productive? What are key steps that we can take as parents, but also that we can communicate to our kids mm -hmm. to make sure that they're going in there with the right mindset, too? That's an excellent question. I think the first thing is the key word that you mentioned is preparation. So don't surprise the physical. Don't surprise the wellness on the child. Let them know in advance that they're coming. Also make sure that you're using neutral language because I think what is scary for most children when they go to the doctor is this idea of getting a shot. So actually using the word immunization is neutral. It's not associated with pain. And if that's something that you know that your child has a phobia or fear around, you can address that. When they're actually getting the immunizations, you can hold your child. You can distract them. Um, distraction is great, actually. While the nurse is giving the shot or the MA is giving the shot, having them watch something, singing a song, all of those things work. As your children get older, you can start to have actual conversations with them. Well, why are you scared to go to the doctor? What is it that you think is going to happen? You know, stress the importance of why it should be part of their development. And all of those things can help reduce that tension, both for the parent and the child in that fear. Yeah, I think about it. I have my boys are completely different animals too. Like one, when you're giving a shot, looks the other way and wants nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. My ten-year-old who wants to be a physician <laughs> is staring at it. He's asking questions like, "Well, what are you doing? And how is that working?" Yep. So you're right. I mean, yep. you can't handle each child the same way. Exactly. Everything needs to be um, specific to what they're comfortable with and what conversations they want to have too. So that's great advice. And that goes also back to the concept of what I mentioned before, that longitudinal relationship. Because if you are doing your physicals annually, you're going to your yearly wellness exams, your doctor is going to get to know your child. I remember my pediatrician finally, Dr. Darden. He's actually YouTube famous. He had an amazing <laughs> trick he would do when he would give um, immunizations. But he also knew my personality. So he, I'd come in, Ashley, what are you learning in school? Are you still getting straight A's? He knew things that were important to me. And it was a, it was a joy for me to go see my doctor. And I think if you're going regularly, your child will be able to develop that relationship with their physician as well. As a parent, I know I love that. I love that relationship with our children's doctor, that mm -hmm. she, when we come in, I don't feel like 
or just a, another patient. Like she remembers things from the last time we talked and mm-hmm. asks how how's how's the track season going or how's cross country conditioning going, and she knows these things about my kids and it just makes me feel so much better to know that she's kind of keeping tabs on them. Absolutely. Speaking of sports, I know a lot of times we combine sports physicals with the wellness physical. Um, Why is that recommended to have a sports physical in conjunction with the wellness physical or do you really need to do it like together? So uh, you don't necessarily have to do it together. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that you schedule them in conjunction in order to take, it's essentially taking a little bit of load off the parent, right? So you Mm -hmm. don't have these two separate visits. And part of what happens during the sports physical is some of the same things that we cover during the actual wellness or physical exam. So your doctor was still check developmental milestones. They'll still go through height, weight, all of those things that we do. If your child is due for immunizations, they'll get up to date on those. But what is important or different about the sports physical is the pre-participation form. So before you go in as a parent, you're gonna fill out uh, these history questions. Those history questions are really important because the purpose of this is to make sure that your child is safe to play. Mm -hmm. So these questions will ask um, about symptoms that might be related to a heart condition. Um, so, you know, do, the, do you have a history of sudden cardiac death, uh, young cardiac death in your family? Um, how are you having any issues with shortness of breath, chest pain, things like that? And if we are able to pick up on those things in a sports physical, we can refer you to the necessary specialist to make sure that your child is safe to play. Often, most children are cleared without a problem, even children that are referred to specialists. But the, the, the idea here is safety and just making sure that there isn't anything else that needs workup. So during a sports physical, unique concerns may come up, you know, depending on the athlete's gender, maybe disability, something that they may have. Could you talk about the importance of addressing um, some of those specific conditions and how healthcare providers ensure safety and inclusivity when it comes to all the athletes? Absolutely. I think you're, what you're alluding to is two kind of um, populations in particular. One, female athletes, and then also um, children that may have disabilities. Focusing on the female athlete, there's this concept or idea of the, of this, of the female athlete triad in which um, they could have menstrual irregularities, issues with their bones, and those are things that we look out for. Um, it, in terms of children with, with disabilities, there isn't necessarily anything outside of the box that we do with the sports physical. It's, it's, the, it's the, same sta- the same format, making sure that they are able to participate safely. But let's say you have a child that um, is deaf or cannot see. We might recommend certain activities or sports that are safe for them to participate. So that's why it's really important to complete both your wellness portion as well as the sports portion, just to making sure your child is safe to engage. So timing is important, I guess. And if you've got a child starting a sport, how early would you recommend they get their sports physical? I would recommend you do it at least six to eight weeks before the start of the season. And the reason I say that is because, as I mentioned, that will give you time if you need to do more workup or refer to a specialist for that for that to happen. It takes time to see specialists. It takes time for whatever issue you may have found to kind of get worked up. And that allows you the time to do so. Uh, let's transition to immunizations. We talked a little bit about it and maybe how to talk your child into, hey, it's everything's going to be okay. This is what we're going to do so there aren't any surprises. But when it comes to knowing 
what you need and what you don't need at what age and stage of life. It can be confusing for a parent. I know when, you know, you start getting that child home for the first time and you're looking at everything you need to do. I mean, it can be a little overwhelming. And then when they go to school, there's a whole nother list of things that you need to do and check those boxes. So when it comes to vaccines, what are recommended for K through eight? Um, and why are they also critically important when it comes to overall health and overall well-being? I am so glad that you asked this question. Immunizations are kind of one of my passion topics. So it's hard to say, um, so from the time a child is born, from birth to the age of 18, there's gonna be a recommended immunization schedule. So instead of kind of going through each immunization or vaccine that is needed at each stage, what I would like to do is kind of highlight the importance and I'm gonna take a couple that I would like to highlight that are really important for your child to have. So we're talking about kindergarten through the eighth grade, right? So by the time your child is old enough to start school, so around six years old, their immune system, if you vaccinated them, will be equipped to resist almost 15 diseases, okay? Mm -hmm. So infants and children get vaccines so that when they come into contact with these viruses and bacteria, their immune systems will be equipped to deal with them. Things like rotavirus, tetanus, um, haemophilus influenzae, pneumococcal, measles, mumps, rubella, and the chickenpox. So we are probably of the generation where we remember having chickenpox. This mm -hmm. younger generation, because of the vaccine, they never had it or had to worry about it. That's the beauty of medicine and the beauty of science. There is one that I would particularly like to highlight, and that's the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. So as you know, we're currently experiencing a measles outbreak. Mm -hmm. The United States for 20 years had elimination status from measles. But if this outbreak continues to happen, we will lose our elimination status. Some people may say, oh, whatever, so what? It's a childhood disease. They'll be fine. That's not the case. Measles can be deadly. The symptoms start with cough, watery, runny eyes, um, and it's usually followed by a rash over the entire body. This can lead to seizures and eventually death. Mumps, this is also one that isn't benign. This is the one you might remember being swollen neck, mm -hmm. you know, not feeling that great. It can also swell the testes and the ovaries, cause infertility and later in life. And rubella, if a pregnant woman was to contract rubella, it could cause miscarriage and even serious birth de defects in the unborn child. So that is the beauty of science. We have been able to eradicate these diseases that have severe morbidity and mortality implications with a simple vaccine. It's amazing to think how long we went without having to even think about the word measles or any of <laughs> yes. those things. And now yes. to see it in so many headlines, yes. it is alarming. It is scary and... Um, I, I always think of things like, if I didn't do this, the, the thing I would fear the most is that my child is making somebody else's family completely sick and vulnerable yes. because I didn't take those steps. And I couldn't live with myself if that was the case. It's one of the reasons why, you know, when we were going through COVID, I just, I didn't want to expose my mom or my family or my friends to anything. So I was careful about masking up in those things. And I hope people think about that when they're maybe on the fence. Well, should I do this or do I not want to do this? Because you're impacting everybody else. I do too. And and not even just uh, when you think about it from the community perspective, because what immunizations does, it is it helps us to protect our most vulnerable populations. So people older or people that might be immunocompromised, being able to get that concept of herd immunity when you have a certain number of persons vaccinated, that it, 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 it protects the rest of the community. Community, it truly does help protect. But even beyond just looking at a community perspective, as I mentioned before, these 
these viruses, these bacteria, they're not benign things. They truly can lead to death, and if not death, serious consequences. Another one that I think about is polio. Um, my great aunt actually had polio. She was one of the lucky ones. She can walk, she can talk, she's had no serious consequences afterwards. But I have seen patients that have severe consequences. We have people that are on the iron lung. Mm -hmm. We don't even have those um, a lot of the techno technical ability to service the iron lung. So can you imagine you could get a vaccine that could prevent you from having to be on this huge machine that is helping you to breathe for the rest of your life or peril or paralysis. Um, the these are the things that vaccines do. Yep. So speaking about that, I think obviously coming out of COVID, there's much more heightened awareness around vaccines. There's mm -hmm. a lot more skepticism around it, hence the rise in measles. So vaccine safety has been a concern or a topic of conversation for years, but now it's even more so. Mm -hmm. um, could you shed some light on the safety and effectiveness of vaccines and particularly particularly when it comes to the common side effects that can occur? I would love to. So the most common side effects that we see with these vaccines is pain at the irritation site, redness at the irritation site, and fever. Those are the most common side effects that we get. So um, with your children, you might remember after they get vaccines, they might be a little bit, bit irritable. They might get feverish. That is their body amounting an immune response. Vaccines do not make you sick. They do not give you the virus or the bacteria or whatever disease it is that we're trying to prevent. Um, COVID specifically has, sound to, has been found or proven to be both efficacious as well as safe. Um, the, the side effects with the COVID vaccine are similar to those that we see with our, with our common vaccines. I will say that my kids, obviously they're connected to their devices or television, but the, the amount of commercials or targeted things when it comes to flu shots or HPV they see those things on TV on some mm -hmm. commercials. And so I, I feel really proud when my sons come up to me and they start asking me, well, what's HPV and do I need to get that vaccine? Yes. So, yes, like, do. We, we, <laughs> so I do want to talk about that, but I, I do say that there's, there's such encouragement from my end as a parent that they're seeing these things and they're hearing about these things. So it's not foreign when they go into a physician's office. So let's talk about HPV. Let's talk about flu, flu shots for specific age groups. Who needs them? At what age do we need to start thinking about those things? Absolutely. So the, the flu, let's start with flu because that's probably the easiest one to talk about. So the flu is something that comes around yearly and you get it during flu season. It's recommended that the flu shot, everyone obtains a flu shot six months and older, including teens every year. Um, flu is unpredictable. Predictable. There's no way to know if you're going to have a mild case of the flu or if you're going to end up in the hospital from the flu. So that's why I recommend the flu vaccine during um, flu season. HPV, HPV is a little bit different. So in terms of what HPV, HPV stands for human papillomavirus. Human papillomavirus is the same virus that causes warts on your skin. So, you know, you go to the pool, you get a wart on your toe, it's the same virus. However, there are different strains of this virus and different strains can also cause cancer. So what is amazing about this vaccine is that we have a vaccine that can prevent cancer. So it can cause um, cervical cancer in women and it can cause penile cancer in men. So when do we start thinking about this vaccine? Okay, so um, if you start the vaccine at the age of nine, in between nine to 12, it's a two-dose series. If you start the vaccine at the age of 15 or older, it's a three-dose series. And like I said, in terms of side effects, the ones that we talked about before, 
pain at the injection site, maybe a little redness. You can't, you, your body can't amount a fever, um, fever response. But again, it is pretty safe and well tolerated. So we have series of vaccinations. Yes. And life can get a little crazy and scheduling appointments can be difficult. What do you suggest for parents if they miss a dose or they fall behind on vaccinations? The first thing I always say is don't worry. Don't worry. You do not have to start the whole series over. Okay. You don't have your kid doesn't have to go through all those pokes and prods. There are what we call catch up immunization schedules. So what your doctor will do is look at what your child has received, when they receive them and figure out when we can give the next dose. They'll put you in a schedule to get your, to get your kiddo caught up. So if you miss a dose, it's okay. Just schedule with your doctor to get to get, to get back on track. Ashley Cremona Simmons is our guest here talking about back to school as everybody kind of transitions out of that summer haze that we love so much, but it is time to get back to business. And, and that means trying to get back on a sleep schedule too. Mm. Um, as a family physician, I'm sure it's one of those things where, you know, it's a hard sell to get people to get the right amount of sleep, depending on where they are in their life and stages with their children. How much the, the magic question is, how much do children really need when it comes to sleep each night? And how does that impact overall well-being and overall school performance, which we're all so worried about these days? Absolutely. So it kind of depends on the age of the child. So as you go into your more adolescent, preteen, teen years, at least eight to 10 hours would be a good amount of sleep. Younger children, 10 to 12. Um, what was the second part of your question? Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, how does that sleep or lack of sleep impact mm -hmm. well-being and how does it impact their school performance? If you can't get enough sleep, I'm guessing you're really going to struggle sometimes either earlier in the day or a little later in your school day too. Absolutely. So if you think about it, like if you don't get restful or restorative sleep, how do you feel during the day? It's the same thing for our kiddos. So having them have a good bedtime routine, making sure that they're getting either the 10 to 12 or eight to 10 hours, depending on their age is really important. Their ability to have restorative sleep enables them to focus in school, which enables better performance. And it's also crucial to their development. So, the, so that sleep period is, is necessary for kids to grow and to learn. Do you have any tips for parents to help like develop a nighttime routine? Yes, and I think it, the first thing is, is making it manageable both for the child as well as the parent. So it has to be something that's realistic. So if you know that your child is gonna throw a tantrum, you know, if it's bedtime strict at this time every night, then maybe not having such a rigid routine, but you want them to have structure. So younger children especially thrive on structure. So I can give you an example of what we do in my household. So 7.30 is my son's bedtime, and whether he's watching a TV show or he's playing outside, he has this concept of a timer. So about 10 minutes before 7.30, I'll put on a timer, and he knows when that timer goes off, that's his signal that now it's time for me to power down. I think the biggest thing, especially with younger children, is the whole house has to be powering down. So mom and dad may not be going to bed at the same time, but making the home an environment that promotes restorative sleep will help your child with their routine. So making sure that someone's not watching the game blaring downstairs, you have loud music, lots of lights, etc. Um, and then in terms of the routine, having kind of the same steps every night. So for us, as I mentioned, it's the alarm, then we go take our bath, then we read our story, and then, you know, we're in the bed. And he, that alarm, though, for him is really a signal. So figuring out what works for you and your family. I remember when we just had the one child, and mm -hmm. you, you, it's easy because it's like, okay, I, easy is not the right word, but mm -hmm. you have this, and you know what time things are coming. Now that I have two, and they're staggered in age, 
the 10 year old's going to bed, but he's looking at the 13 year old and saying, mm -hmm. wait, how come he gets to stay up an hour, hour and a half later than I do? I want to do that too. I think that's the battle that I fight currently is, yeah. well, I want to stay up. He's getting to stay up. And then when screens have to be powered off, and I, I want to get into that topic with you too, how do you get them to get off those screens so that their brains have a second to kind of go like this to help make that sleep schedule a little easier? So in terms of screen time, there's a couple of things that you can do just within your home that can help make that transition easier, both for your younger kiddos as well as your older kiddos. One is not having a TV in the room. So if, if you have, have their bedrooms, not having a TV in the room. If your child has personal devices, um, everyone should be charging those devices outside of the bedroom. Mm -hmm. So that will inhibit them from hopping on that device when they're supposed to be in bed and it also takes away that blue light the whole powering down aspect should be occurring about 30 minutes to an hour before bed because what the blue light does is it kind of tricks your circadian rhythm and thinking like oh i need to be up right and so if you're trying to go to sleep but you just had your phone or your tablet on 10 minutes before your brain is not going to be in the mode to go to bed so those are two tricks that i would do with the screen time in terms of having children at staggered ages that might be on different schedules, that's a hard one. And that's probably family dependent family by family. But that goes back to establishing boundaries and making whole house rules. So maybe your 13-year-old gets to stay up a little longer, but he knows, you know, if your 10-year-old's bedtime starts at 8 or 7.30, that it's time for him to do quieter activities. Mm -hmm. It's time for him to also start powering down so his younger sibling can go to sleep. Finally, something I'm doing right. That's exactly how we do it. <laughs> so, yes, I'm not failing completely. <laughs> I love it. I was going to say, too, leading by example, which I struggle with because I am one of those revenge um, like scrollers because I don't have time during the day to look at TikTok or, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, catch up on what people are doing. And so I really am that mom that when everybody starts to power down, I like jump on my phone and like scroll and my children have called me out on it. Like, hey, I'm not allowed on my phone. Why are you on your phone? And sometimes I'm like, I'm the mom. Let me do what I want to do. But, um, but yeah, like, I, we actually have those um, alarms on our phone that, like, play the little quick lullaby that's like, it's time to shut it down. I always laugh because my husband's is so early. It goes off sometimes when we're eating dinner. And I'm like, time to go to bed. He's ready. He's ready to go to bed. But um, using that as a, as a cue, too, for us as adults is nice because then we're like, oh, we should be putting our phones down right now. And mm -hmm. again, my 19-year-old is 19, so he should be able to self-regulate. But my 14-year-old, the phone's coming with me when I go to bed so that yeah. he doesn't have that temptation even when he wakes up in the middle of the night to pick it up because I have that temptation. So, uh, If you're just joining us, we have spent uh, uh, some quality time with Ashley Cremona Simmons, um, a family physician with Ohio Health, a DO. And uh, one of the things we really like about this podcast is getting a chance to get to know you to even beyond what you do from a professional experience. So we wanted to open it up to a couple of just a final question just about you sure. so that our, our listening audience and even us can have a chance to get to know you. You're so busy, so do you have time to even watch TV or go to the movies? And if so, what do you dive into? What is it that you do to try to get yourself away from your regular life? Um, hmm. I think my son is a big source of enjoyment for me. <laughs> so most of my TV watching is probably actually consumed with what he wants to watch, which is okay. Um, but 
my favorite TV shows, which are actually kind of coming back on Netflix and things, are like old 90s sitcoms. So Family Matters and Sister, Sister. Like, I finally finally remember TJF. It was like a whole lineup of shows that Mm -hmm. we would watch. Like, we didn't have cable, and now those things are on Netflix. And for me, also, it was a positive representation because there weren't a lot of people on TV that looked like me. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives me that very warm sense of nostalgia so i do do that and then you ask me other things that i do to unwind um i'm into like interior design and i actually used to work as a makeup artist um i did it for a little bit while i was in grad school so like beauty industry those things are interesting to me nice that's awesome that is great uh what about your go-to comfort food i know we talked a lot about nutrition but Let's talk comfort food. We'll give you a break if you want to say, well, I like these things. And we're like, well, my kids wouldn't want to eat that. What do you like? Well, you know, actually, it's a tea. So um, growing up, my I spent some time, I used to spend a lot of time at my grandma's house. And I was one of those ones, I just would not go to sleep. And I just remember she would make me sleepy time tea, the celestial sleepy time tea. With the bear on the the box. And that is is my comfort place. I will go, I'll have a cup at night, and just the smell reminds me of my grandma. So that's actually my comfort food, is that tea? Absolutely. I love that. Because it's nostalgic and it's sentimental, too. It's not just... I vividly when I when I have the cup I could, I just think of my grandma and I can see I can see you know my little toddler self supposed to be going to bed <laughs> <laughs> and you probably thought you were so grown up exactly having tea. my little cup of tea. <laughs> it's cool because you have a four year old and and the four year old is going to grow up and probably have some really neat story about oh my mom and I remember oh. this and it brings me back so oh I I look forward to that that's definitely the sweet part. all those times you had to sit and watch Paw Patrol and all that <laughs> all worthwhile. So before we wrap up, we do invite you to follow us on all major social channels and stay up to date on new episodes and other health and wellness topics. And if you're looking for more information on Ohio Health Services and locations, be sure to visit OhioHealth.com. We, of course, want to thank Ashley Cremona Simmons for joining us for this uh, really smart discussion that I think is going to open up a lot of eyes and hearts and ears. And so we thank you so much for your expertise uh, and your time to join us for this podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And of course, the information in this episode will be available in written form on the Ohio Health Wellness blog. And as Missy said, blog.ohiohealth.com and ohiohealth.com are two great places for you to log in and find all the information that you need. And if you have any other suggestions or questions about back to school, you know, you can find us on social media. We're Ohio Health on all major social channels. So feel free to drop us a DM there if you have anything to suggest or any further questions, because I'm sure we'll be having you back to talk a little bit more. I love to come back. Thank you again for having me. Before we wrap up, we invite you to join us on all major social channels to stay up to date on new episodes and other health and wellness topics. And if you're looking for more information on Ohio Health services and locations, be sure to visit ohiohealth.com. And the information in this episode will also be available in written form on the Ohio Health Wellness blog. You can find that at blog.ohiohealth.com. We thank you for tuning in to the Wellness Conversation. We hope you found this episode informative and valuable, and be sure to join us next time as we continue our exploration of important health and wellness topics with Ohio health experts. Mm-hmm.